Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week, my producer Miranda and I explore the top stories making waves in the news, and some that are just plain interesting. We connect you with the journalists and people who know the story, and bring you news without the noise, so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, we will be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. We just got through Christmas, and every year millions of Americans head to their Christmas tree lots to pick out that perfect tree. But have you ever stopped to wonder how that tree got there? Of course not. Most people don't think of that. But what you might not know is that researchers are always working to bring you better trees every year and avoid something called coning. Robbie Gonzalez, senior writer at Wired, joins us for the science of growing the perfect tree. And we start off by talking about what scientists are thinking about when trying to get that thing perfect. It's interesting. A lot of the things that people pay attention to when they go to pick up trees, they are actually the same kinds of things that scientists think about when they are trying to decide the best ways to raise trees in large numbers on Christmas tree farms and also to breed them, so looking at the genetics of those trees. And there are things like, as you said, the color of the tree. There's something called needle retention, which is literally how many needles stay on the tree as opposed to how many of them wind up covering the gifts underneath. There's things like the color. And then, of course, the overall health of the tree. These are all things that some scientists can actually test for. I spoke with one researcher His name is Bert Craig, and he's a forest scientist at Michigan State University, and he does work on something called cold hardiness, basically how resistant are trees to really, really cold temperatures, the kind of thing that can cause them to become less healthy or even die over the course of eight, nine, ten seasons, which is the typical age of a Christmas tree. And that experiment actually involves plucking little sprigs from experimental trees and sticking them in a freezer and slowly lowering the temperature of that freezer and pulling out sprigs every few degrees Celsius, and then seeing at which point they start to turn color. And the idea is, if you find trees that can resist colder temperatures, then the farmers who grow these trees in large numbers can produce better yields, better looking trees, and get you a better looking tree every year. It takes about 10 years for a tree to fully mature that you can take to a lot so you can buy and put in your your home. And these trees are growing about one foot per year, and obviously going through the seasons, going through the cold climate, and they need these resilient trees to be able to last that long. If they're not making it that long, then they're just useless and you're wasting time and resources. Another one that they uh, really focus on, too, is uh, how you fertilize these things. And it was uh, interesting that you noted in the article that old farmers used to over-fertilize these things. And it have a, a number of different effects where it would affect the groundwater and whatnot. And through these kind of analysis, we're able to figure out, you know, you don't need to fertilize them that much, fertilize each tree, and you save time, money, and uh, don't affect the groundwater that way. Talk to us about coning. This, and this involves pine cones growing on the tree, which in Christmas trees is a bad thing. You don't want pine cones on this tree. So talk to us about the process with that. Coning is literally just like it sounds, the appearance of pine cones on a tree. Now, in nature, fir trees, for example, they typically start showing cones after they hit about 15 years old. But on farms, and what's interesting is researchers aren't even really sure why this happens, but in farming scenarios, fir trees will sprout cones much, much earlier than that, after maybe three or four years. The thing is, these cones do not what's called persist. Every season, they sprout, they mature for a little bit, and then they dry out and they shatter and they get all over the tree. And that doesn't look good. If you get a tree with lots of cones on it, people don't buy it. It's a wasted tree from an economic standpoint, from a tree farmer's standpoint. That's a tree they can't use. So coning is a problem. 
A bigger problem is how you address it. So a typical fir tree can sprout hundreds of cones every year. A big one might sprout a thousand. If you're looking at fir trees and something like 90% of fir trees grown commercially in the U.S. experience coning, that's millions of trees sprouting hundreds to thousands of cones apiece. You're looking at potentially billions of cones that need to be plucked by hand every year. That's a huge time cost, right? right? That's a huge expense for these farmers. That's so crazy. I don't think anybody really realizes that that's part of what goes into growing these trees and, and making sure they're ready for that Christmas tree lot. That is so much work. It's so much work without anything. It's just, it's incredible. Finally, just to move on real quick, talk to us about this other thing called the Collaborative for Germplasm Evaluation Project. And this is, yeah, yeah. I mean, this is all about getting new trees so that they don't get affected by something called root rot. We've been talking a lot so far about what are called culture techniques. Basically, how can you adjust your farming practices to improve the output of your tree? One thing we haven't talked about yet is the genetic side of things. And on the genetics front, one of the most ambitious projects related to Christmas trees is this project called COFERGE, and that's short for Collaborative Fur Germplasm Evaluation Project. And that is this multi-institutional nationwide effort to identify, among other things, new species of fir tree for the Christmas tree market, between 30 and 40 species of fir trees around the world. The exact number depends on who you ask, and I won't get into that. But only a small handful of those are currently grown for the North American Christmas tree market. And two of the most popular trees are particularly susceptible to this thing called root rot. It's caused by a water mold and a tree that comes down with it can die in a matter of days. So it's a big problem in America's biggest tree growing states. But in Turkey, there are fir trees that are resistant to root rot. So right now, one of the goals of the Coferge project is to grow Turkish fir trees in Michigan, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Washington, I think Oregon's in there. I'm probably missing a couple. But one of the goals of the project is to see how adaptable these trees are in different U.S. climates. And the goal is to find, you know, if this tree can be resistant to root rot and it can survive in North American climates, maybe we could have a new kind of Christmas tree down to lot. All those states you mentioned, the top three growers of trees are Oregon, Michigan, and North Carolina. So, yeah, it would be very beneficial for them to get something like that where they're saving trees. They don't have to plant as much. Uh, the trees will last longer for them. So it's just incredible to think of how little we really think as consumers about this stuff. But there's so much going behind it. And you really got to think these are all trees are 10 years in the making. So by the time you're picking it, this has already been a decade in the making for you. Robbie Gonzalez, senior writer at Wired. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. The top story of the year for me is definitely that of the McDonald's Monopoly scam and the Big McSting. I remember playing this game as a kid. I think we all played it. You'd buy a meal and little paper Monopoly game pieces were there. They helped you get Park Place or Boardwalk. Everybody wanted to win a car or a million dollars, but a lot of times you'd just get an instant win for an order of fries or something like that. We talked to journalist Jeff Mache to talk about how an ex-cop rigged the entire Monopoly game and stole millions of dollars. The story included mobsters, strip club owners, drug traffickers, a tenacious FBI agent, a big anonymous tip that brought the whole thing down. A big update on that is now that Ben Affleck and Matt Damon are working on a film adaption of this big story. 20th Century Fox has a bid on the rights to this. Matt Damon is going to star in it. It's going to be directed by Ben Affleck. 
the writers of the superhero movie Deadpool are working on the script. So it's going to be pretty amazing. The story in and of itself is already great. So with all these people behind it, it should be a pretty cool movie. So we talked to Jeff Mace. We started off by talking about the game's connection to the mob. It's a little known fact, but the McDonald's Monopoly game was corrupted by the mob. It was an inside job that started back in 1987, and it happened during the production of those game pieces that you and I tried to collect during the 90s. An ex-cop that was running the production of those started stealing the winning prizes. It's a huge scheme that ended up happening, and it involved mobsters and people all across the country. They really built a network of people that they were giving game pieces to, and then you can cash it out. People were even driving to a different state so you can cash out your game piece so as not to uh, get the pool of winners so close together. More than 50 people were convicted of this crime, and they were professionals. These were organized criminals who set up a network. They gave people fake identities. They had people moving states to set up fake lives in the next state over to collect their winning ticket. And these were big prizes. Million-dollar tickets, $500,000 tickets. You could win a Dodge Viper. For almost 13 years, almost every major prize was stolen by this criminal gang. And the man behind it all is Jerome Jacobson. He's also known as Uncle Jerry. And he, obviously, he kind of made the most sense. He was the guy who was physically handling the winning game pieces and supposedly distributing them out to the McDonald's packaging places where, you know, he'd place the winning ticket on that hash brown package or that fry container. And it was him all along because he was working security for this. He developed a reputation for looking in people's shoes and making sure they weren't stealing the game pieces. But he was the guy all along. Everyone was completely shocked when it was revealed that Uncle Jerry was behind this crime because he just had this great reputation. A former cop in Hollywood, Florida, he was a stickler for security and and anti-theft. He invented all of the processes for McDonald's to make sure that none of these game pieces could be stolen. So really, he was in a prime position, and I think the temptation to steal was just too much for him. He was he was playing God. He was making right. millionaires. Yeah, he was a kingmaker uh, hand, handing out a million dollars at a time to these people. Who wouldn't be tempted? He's traveling across the country. He's wearing a special vest that he invented to keep the game pieces safe. And he's going to these factories, and it's down to him to put them on the on the French fry packets. And like most scams, it started off small. He gave his brother $25,000 here. He gave his butcher a free car. It started small. And then obviously greed takes over. And before you know it, he's getting involved with some very, very sketchy characters. So what was his process? How was he getting the game pieces and how was he distributing them out? And how was he getting paid in return for that? He was the head of security at the company that produced the game pieces. And it was his job to take them off the print production line and seed them at the factory. So he would fly with an independent auditor all around the country. They'd send him to a random factory and he would hide them in a soft drink cup or a French fry container. And it was his job to put it in at random. The only time Jacobson was not being watched by this auditor was when he went to the restroom. So he'd sneak into the toilet and he would rip open the envelope that contained these million-dollar game pieces and he'd steal them. He'd swap them out for commons or blank game pieces. So no one really knew it was him for a long, long time. 
And it was a weird mix-up, almost fate. He had gotten a package by mistake, which had those security tags on it, where the envelope would be closed, and they'd put a little security sticker on it, and that's how you knew it wasn't tampered with. He had gotten a pack of those, and then that's when he realized, I'm going to go in the restroom, I'm going to open it, and I'm going to reseal it with an authentic security sticker, and then nobody's any the wiser. This was a complicated procedure. McDonald's obviously a huge company and they trusted the printer and, and these independent auditors to come up with a system that was foolproof. But experts have told me that not one person should be trusted with the entire system. They should have swapped out Jacobson every couple of months and give the responsibility to somebody else so right. that this doesn't happen. One of the things that happened is not that he was taken off of the project, but they changed some of the processes for a little bit. And then years down the road, they put him back in charge. So he was back in the game again on that. Yeah, they did change it briefly because they had other problems with theft at McDonald's because the other members of staff, you know, in the restaurants were, were stealing the tickets too. So right. it was a bit of a mess back then. So then how was he getting the payouts? I mean, he was setting people up to, quote unquote, win or find one of these magic game pieces. And then how was he making money off the deal with those people? Well, he'd charge them for, for the ticket. He'd sell, the say, a million-dollar game piece for $50,000. If you win a million dollars with McDonald's, a lot of people don't know this, you can either get the money up front or you can have it sent to you in $50,000 installments for 20 years and you pay less tax. So what Uncle Jerry would say was, here's a million-dollar ticket. When you get your first installment of $50,000, send that to me and I'll keep it. And he did that dozens of dozens of times, so stealing up to $24 million in prizes. How does the mob figure into this? I mean, they were tied to the Colombo crime family. He even gave himself a mobster name, uh, Geraldo <laughs> Constantino or something, and he was dressing in flashy suits. You know, this is after the process had been going on for a while. He was making a lot of money. How did the whole mob factor come into place? Well, the mob get involved in everything, don't they? Well, um, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so they, it's not uh, a lucrative business unless they're involved, so... Well, anything like gambling, bookmaking, numbers games. So Uncle Jerry met by accident a gentleman called Gennaro Colombo in an airport in Atlanta. And they got talking. Colombo admitted that he was a member of the Colombo crime family, one of the five crime families in New York. He claimed he was part of the mafia and he started becoming a middleman for Jacobson. He was taking tickets and finding lucky winners. And he gave them to several people who went and claimed cars and million dollar prizes and boats. As we find out later in the story, getting involved with the organized criminals was actually part of Jacobson's downfall. It all came down to an FBI agent, Richard Dent, who really worked the case, uh, just really great detective work. And he's the one who found out uh, Columbo was involved and they were making money hand over fist on this process. The greed factor is high in an operation like this. Pieces started falling through the cracks. How did he crack this case? Frankly, there were just too many winners. The scheme got too big for its own good. And eventually someone picked up the telephone and they called the FBI field office and got through to Agent Dent, who's a brilliant white collar crime specialist. His job really is to break down bank fraud, mail fraud, public corruption, things like that. So the McDonald's case was kind of bizarre for Dent. I like to think of him at his desk surrounded by Big Mac wrappers. But the numbers, <laughs> right. I think, would have really appealed to him because he, he dealt with major crimes, major bank fraud. So he started tapping phones very early on. He tapped Jerry Jacobson's phone and immediately realized that this was a major, major fraud. Jacobson had also given his former partner, Columbo, the magic gray M&M. 
there was a, it was another promotion that his company that he was working security for was also in charge of. And he gave them that. They had it in their freezer for safekeeping so that when they could connect the dots and claim that prize, they were even going to do that. This was one of the wildest parts of the reporting of this story. So I had no idea about the M&M connection. And Robin Colombo, who is married to Gennaro Colombo, told me that she'd opened the fridge one night and found this mysterious grey M&M and was about to eat it because she was very hungry. And her husband appeared behind her and said, don't eat that. That's worth a million dollars. <laughs> and it was part of, apparently, the Mars Corporation ran a competition in the 90s to find a grey imposter M&M. And if you did, you were a millionaire. And although Mars didn't respond to my inquiries and neither did McDonald's or anyone involved in the production of these pieces, I did discover that the same company made the Mars corporations, the M&M promotional material as did the McDonald's stuff. So oh we can only assume that the criminal conspiracy might have been a bit bigger <laughs> than what we knew about originally. Back to how the case was cracked. They were handing out to people that they knew at certain points. They were handing it out. It's like, my butcher knows a guy who can win it. And they'd travel out of state. And then a lot of times what McDonald's would do would get these winners and put them in front of a camera and say, hey, congratulations. How did you win? And everything like that. Because people want to know. People want to keep the excitement up. The FBI agent, Richard Dent, would track those people down and say, well, they don't actually live in North Carolina. They live in South Carolina. And that's miles away from this last winner who was trying to claim the winning ticket in another state as well. So that's how he was putting together all the pieces. The turning point for the FBI was when Agent Dent printed out a map of the Carolinas and he put a pin in each of the winners' addresses once he'd found where they really lived. And about five or six of them all lived around this small town near Anderson, South Carolina. And the odds of five or six people all winning a million dollars, one in 500 million chance, are absolutely astronomical. He knew that to get a conviction, the FBI would have to do something really splashy. So they decided to set up a McSting. I love that. The McSting. This was going on from 1989 at the beginning, at the early part of it, to 2001, 11 years. And this all came down because of an anonymous tip where they called uh, Special Agent Dent and told him about it. We still don't know who put that tip in, right? You must assume it might have been somebody who was wronged somewhere along the line in this process. I spoke to so many people who were convicted in this crime, and everyone has got an opinion on who the tipster was. My personal theory is one that I share with Robin Colombo, whose husband died during the case or just before the trial happened. And she believes that it was the Colombo crime family that called the FBI because of a family dispute. That's the theory that I think is the most reliable. In all of this millions of dollars in fraud, how much time did Jacobson get? How much did you say he was had handed out? It was in the 20 something million dollars, or 24 million dollars. $24 million, yes. He yeah. pleaded guilty, so he got a much reduced sentence. He did about three years. That's it. He was one of the few people to go to jail. I think three other people got jail sentences, and they served just over a year. Everyone else, they got probation, and nearly 50 people are still paying back their restitution today at $50 a month. Oh, my God. It's an amazing story. We're going to link to it. Jeff Mace, journalist and author, covers unusual crimes and criminals, as this story definitely is. We found this in the Daily Beast. Thank you very much for telling us this story. It's a, it's a very fun one to, to read through and to listen to you tell. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. 
leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.